So we're in the fifth chapter of James. Uh, if you grab your Bibles like your life depended upon it, because it truly does, and open up, I'm going to be going over the first six verses here to start off with. James writes, look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are accounting on will eat away your flesh like fire. The corroded treasures you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your field have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your very desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Wow. That makes you want to read the rest of the chapter, doesn't it? (laughs) Pastor Zeke and I were talking earlier this week, and we said, you know, James has spent the first four chapters correcting us, although he's speaking directly to his people, but it pertains to us today. And he spent those first four chapters correcting us. And it was like, I got one more chapter and I'm going to shoot at him real big this time. And so it was kind of like this fifth chapter is like, if I hadn't hit you before, let me see if I can't get you uh, this time around. So this is not one of those feel good messages and it doesn't start off that way. And after I read those six First verses, I thought, okay, how can I bring a smile to somebody's face? Because James proclaims the worthlessness of riches, but not the worthlessness of the rich, if you read very carefully. Today's money will be worthless when Christ returns, so we should spend our time accumulating the kind of treasures that are worthwhile in God's eternal kingdom. You see, money is not the problem. Christian leaders need money. Churches need money. Missionaries need money to spread the good news. As I said, churches need money to be effective. But it's the love of money that is the sin. It is the time that you take money and make it your God and make it your focal point of everything that you say and do. I need to get another dollar, even if I have to step on somebody else. First Timothy Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So don't elevate money to to be your God. It can cause you to become self-centered for only your needs. Money causes people to oppose others just so they can get more fame, more fortune. This is a warning to all believers that are tempted about worldly standards rather than God's standards. Romans 12, 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Do not copy the behavior and customs of the world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And then God's word even gives encouragement to all those that are pressed by those that are 
of the wealthy statue, those that have back in James's days had slaves. In Matthew 6, 19, is what Jesus says about riches. Do not store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy them and thieves cannot break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. So going to verse 4 in the fifth chapter here, we hear the question that if we are not the wealthy oppressors, are we to just stand by idly and watch what is going on? And the answer to that is no. If we are members of society where oppression is practiced, we will also follow, follow under God's judgment, even if we aren't personally treating people poorly, if we're just watching and accepting that behavior. James makes it clear that believers need to be a force that combats oppression and treats people who are poor with respect. No matter how much money each of us has, we need to respect each other. And scripture tells us we need to love one another. Allegiance to Christ ought to be an influence the way that we help anyone who is powerless to help themselves. Following Jesus calls us to lead generous lives. If you just think back on history of this nation for a moment, how many times has this nation stepped in in different places where people were being oppressed? They were being massacred. They were being oppressed so poorly, so badly, that it just appalled everyone. And we would step in. Blessed are those peacemakers that come in to protect those people that are oppressed. And we have oppression that goes on in this country for those that are poor. And we should reach out to them. We should protect them for they are as we are God's children. In verse 6, it talks of innocent people and is referring to defenseless peoples. Really, he's, uh, James is referring to the poor laborers who had suffered at the hands of the wealthy landowners. Poor people who were called, who were unable to pay their debts. And they were often placed in prison, forced to sell their possessions, and sometimes even forced to sell family members into slavery. They really had no opportunity to work off their debts. These poor people often died of starvation. And God called this murder. Hoarding money, exploiting employees, and living self-indulgently will not escape God's notice. Generous and fair treatment of people who depend upon us matters to God. You know, we must be the only country on this earth where we build storage facilities to put our stuff that we don't have room in our houses. And we pay somebody to take the stuff that we go, I I, I don't have room for this. In reality, wouldn't it be a blessing if you looked at this and you go, I don't need this anymore. Is there somebody that can use this and share with one another? You know, so often we get stuff and we go, you know, I might use this again. And the next time when we finally dig it out and we look at it and we go, what the heck is this? Why why did we even buy this? 
And if you're a husband, you remember not why you bought it, but you remember how much it cost. And you'll say, well, I don't know why we bought it, but it cost X number of dollars, and now you're in trouble. Because you're focusing on what? The money. Generous and fair treatment of people does matter to God. You know, why do we want to save something to put it in a building that's not even close to our house and then pay somebody to let us put it in that building? I'm not sure that that makes any sense, but I tell you that we have actually done that at my house before. Only to sit there and go, why are we, why are we doing this? And then the answer is, I don't know. Seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, people have things they don't throw away just for the sake of not throwing them away. We keep stuff that we can share with someone else. So the next time you're going through something, whether it's clothes, whether it's furniture, ask yourself, is there somebody that can use this? We have great relationships with Humble Area Assisted Ministry. They will take stuff that people can use. So think about that next time. You know, I, I, can, I can remember when Melanie and I first got married. I'm glad she's not here today. I can remember when we first got married, we had boxes for Christmas, and Melanie so graciously put little love notes on the boxes, and then she put box one of six, box two of six. You know, we have so many boxes, we don't even number them anymore. And there's no little notes on them. They're just, say, Christmas. We have them in the attic. We have them in the, uh, in the garage attic. We, have them, we even built a storage area up underneath the stairwell. All that has Christmas stuff in it. And when we have Christmas, every box has to come out because we don't know what we're going to use this time. When in reality, it's because we don't know what we have. <laughs> we have so much stuff. Okay, I'm off my stuff soapbox. Other people can use some of these things, folks. Be generous to those that have less than what you've been blessed with. So we skip down to verse 7 and 8. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait on the, for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. We talk about patience. <clears throat> everybody in this room, everybody that's listening in, we get our patience tried all the time. We're not a patient people right now. We're in a hurry to often get to where we're going to do what? Wait. If you have a doctor's appointment at 9.30, what time do you get there? 9.15, certainly before 9.30, because they tell you, be here 15 minutes early. And then 9.30 rolls around, and you're still sitting there. And at quarter to 10, you're still sitting there. And finally, you get to go in and see the doctor. So the next time you go, you know what? I'm not going to get there till 9.30. And there's traffic, and you get there at 9.40. And they've already taken that other patient that got there early or the one that's been sitting there since 8.30. We are not a patient people. The farmers must 
patiently wait for their crops to grow. They cannot hurry the process, but they do not take the summer off and just hope everything's going to be okay in the fields. There is work to ensure a good harvest. In the same way, we must patiently wait on God when we ask for things. We cannot make him come back any sooner than he's going to come back. But while we wait, there is much work to be done to advance his kingdom. Both a farmer and the believer must live by, the, by faith, looking forward to the future reward for their labors. Do not live as though Christ is never coming back, but yet don't sit there and just say, I wish he'd hurry up. We should work faithfully to build his kingdom. The king will come when it's his time to come. We've seen so many things go on in this nation over the years, and we've had times that I know some people that lived through the Civil War and lived through the Depression will say it's much worse than what you guys are living through now. But yet we want to focus on self and we want to focus on the moment. There were times that this nation was probably closer to God than we are right now. And yet we want to look at things changing quickly. You know, when you go to a fast food place, you go to, I don't want to do a commercial here, but just one of the fast food places, you pull up, you make your order, and you order a number one, a number two, number six, whatever number that you're going to order. You order that, and you pull up to the first window then, and you pay, and then you pull up the second window, and you get your food, and you move on. But if you pull up to the window, and you say, I want a number two, but I don't want any pickles, You've ordered something that is a specialty. And if you change it very much from what is on that screen, what that number originally was, you're going to pull up, pay your money, and they're going to tell you, pull over there and we'll bring it to you. So how many people just go up there and they order number one, and I'll just take the pickles off when I get home? Because I don't want to wait any longer than I have to wait. But you know what? When we ask God for something special, it's the same way. He's going to tell us, pull over here and wait. And so often we are people that go, no, I don't want to wait. I need this now. Why do you think I'm asking you now, God? This is going to come as a shock to everybody. You know what? It's okay not to be the first in line. It's okay to come up and the line be real long and we go, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to wait. You know what's going to happen? (laughs) If you don't get frustrated and leave, you're going to get to be first in line at some point. You'll get up there. God hears your prayers. He's going to answer those prayers. But according to his goodwill and according to his time. I know sometimes God looks down and goes, yeah, okay. And I know if we were to hear those words from him, we'd go, oh, okay, when? And you said, okay, God. You know, it's like we're little kids. Can we go to get some ice cream, Dad? Sure. When? In a little bit. How long is a little bit? Well, in a few minutes. Okay, is a few minutes up yet? I know we do that to God. Now, if you'll turn to the ninth verse, 
James writes, do not grumble about each other's brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give them great honor as those who endured under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord's fullness of tenderness is full of tender and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. When things go wrong, and first of all, I love the word grumble here because they could have used a whole lot of other words when they put that in there. We are really good at complaining about something. But we know things are going to go wrong. And we know there's going to be change in life. And we struggle with that, especially if it's a change that we didn't want. And usually when we're grumbling about something that didn't go our way, we reach out and we look to see who we can blame for it not being that way, for us being in misery. That began in the very beginning. We've talked about this thousand times you can go to the third chapter of Genesis and we see Adam and Eve who are living in a wonderful place and then there's sin Eve blames the serpent Adam blames Eve even blames God because you're the one that gave me the woman and we play that blame game we blame others you know it seems to be easier to blame others than owning our share of responsibility. And in not owning that responsibility, it can be both destructive and sinful. So before you judge someone else's shortcomings, remember that Jesus is the judge. He will come to evaluate each of us. Matthew writes, do not judge others and you will not be judged. But he's not going to let us get away with playing the game of blaming somebody else and not owning our responsibility. In verses 10 and 11, James talks about the prophets such as Moses, Elijah, and Jeremiah, and the many that suffered and were persecuted. In the 12th verse, James reminds us that there are those with reputations for exaggeration, for outright lying, to the point to where nobody can believe anything that they say. Believers should never become like that. Always be honest with others so that they will believe your simple word. They will believe your simple yes and no. Avoid lies, half-truth, and most of all, we do this unconsciously sometimes, but if you do not have omissions of truth, if you know the truth, speak the truth, and you will become known as a trustworthy person. The kind of patience that James is highlighting in these verses is patience facing those that are suffering. Looking at Job, we see his steadfastness in in his patience, despite his tremendous sufferings. God blessed him with renewed health, new children, and new possessions. But the real blessing for Job was this. He saw God. He got to experience God firsthand. You know, God's cloud of great witness didn't end during biblical times. It's still here. 
We see faithful testimony of believers throughout history as examples of God continuing to bless those that are faithful. Now, verse 12 here is to the point. When you say yes, mean yes. If it's no, then mean no. And don't throw out the word maybe when you know you're not going to do something. Just tell them no. Be honest. That's the simplest way to be. Your word should be your bond. Some of you are maybe not as old as I am, but you can remember when someone asked you or made a deal with you or asked you to do something and you shook on it. You didn't need a lawyer. You didn't need a written contract. You were going to do it because it was your word. I remember growing up in a generation where my parents said, if you tell somebody you're going to do something, then you better die doing it. Don't change your mind. If you weren't going to do it, just simply, excuse me, simply say, I can't do that for whatever reason. But be honest and open with one another. Then verses 13 and 15. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. In the early church, the expectations of God healing directly was thought of all the time. In fact, God's intervention was part of daily life to some of those people. God's, uh, James' guidance for healing prayer would make churches today more personal and more effective. Anointing with oil was a practice often used by early believers in their prayers for healing. Scripture describes the oil used as medicine, but it also symbolizes the spirit of God. Thus, here the oil was a sign of the power of prayer, of healing, and setting apart people who were sick for God's special attention. People in churches should not face their illness alone. God's church should be a place where you are supported by prayer. Prayer should be freely offered and offered often. The prayer offered in faith does not refer to the faith of the sick, but it refers to the faith of those that are praying. So before you pray, make sure your heart is clean. Make sure you're not carrying baggage around with you that will block that prayer to the Lord. Besides that, we all know that it is the Lord that makes us well. Any other formula that we want to try to put with it doesn't work. But God wants to hear those prayers as part of the healing process. Sometimes we forget the power of prayer. So here's how you remember the power of prayer. What if I gave each of you a million dollars? And now I have people listening to me now. If I gave you each a million dollars, you would be a millionaire. But if you don't know how to write a check or you don't know how to withdraw that million dollars, then the blessing can't be enjoyed, can it? Too many of us have bank accounts full of God's blessings and we forget how to write a check. We forget how to cash in on those blessings. We don't have that spiritual reservoir that we need to be able to live out the full blessings that God has for us. 
Praise God everybody in this room has electricity in their house. That electricity is flowing all the time. But to get the light to turn on, what do you have to do? You have to flip a switch. You have to press a button to make it work. It has to be a connection. You need to have that connection with Jesus, for he is the one with the power that works. We have a right relationship, and we go to him in prayer. Verses 16 and 18, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of the righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human, we are, and yet he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall. None fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield crops. The most powerful resource that we have is communion with God through prayer. The results are often greater than we would even think possible. Way too often, people see prayers as a last resort. When everything else that you've tried has failed, you go, well, let's see if God can help us. That approach is backwards. First thing we should do is pray. God has infinitely greater power than any man. To rely on prayer at the beginning makes sense, especially because God has encouraged us to come to him in prayer. You know, if your car's not running, you call a mechanic. And if your appliance goes out in your home, you may call a repairman. If your body is breaking down, you call a doctor. If you tear your clothes, you call a tailor. That was probably a bad example for the guys. If you have a favorite shirt and you put a hole in it, it doesn't matter. We don't need it sewed up. We're going to continue to wear it because especially it's my lucky shirt. It fits good. And I know, ladies, you have no clue what I'm talking about. So what do you do when your life breaks down? When it's a spiritual issue, the first place you should go is to God Almighty. Anything you use or try to fix it, any kind of problem in your life, cannot compete with the power of God. Nothing is ever better than divine intervention. And James says the fervent prayer avails much. Could it be that we're not fervently praying when we pray? Fervent prayer means that you don't quit easily with this prayer. It means you purposefully spend sufficient time in intercession. It means that times, at times we cry out in tears with our heart and soul for God to intercede. This kind of prayer comes with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Christ has opened the way for us to go directly to that throne of grace and get God's forgiveness. But confessing our sins to each other needs to have a prominent place in the life of the church. And by righteous person, James is not talking about a sinless person, but those who effectively pray for others that have confessed their sins and that they have confessed their sins and have a right relationship with God. If confession does not come with repentance, it's merely admission. It's not true confession. It is important to confess your sins specifically and honestly and not to hide behind generalities. Confession is not a sign of weakness. It's the evidence of your refusal to allow sin to remain in your life. So speaking of confession, there was four pastors that got together. And they decided they wanted to confess to one another. And the first one said, I, I 
confess that I watched some movies that I shouldn't be watching. And the second pastor said, well, I want to confess that occasionally I go to a casino and I gamble. And the third preacher said, when I'm alone, I smoke cigars and cigarettes and I have a beer or two or three or four. And the final preacher said, well, my sin is gossip and I can't wait to get out of here. This verse points us toward toward many important scriptural principles related to confession. First, if we have sinned against an individual, we seek forgiveness from that person. Secondly, if if the sin has affected the church, we confess our sin publicly. Next, if we need loving support as we struggle with sin, we should confess to those who are able to provide support. And next, after we confess privately sin to God privately if we still do not feel his forgiveness we may wish to confess our sin to fellow believers to receive receive assurance that God has pardoned us as believers we are honored to be priests to one another in verses 19 and 20 my dear brothers and sisters if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back you can be assured that Whoever brings the sinner back from a wandering will save that person from death and bring about forgiveness for many sins. One of believers' greatest deterrents from sin is the life of another believer who has been forgiven. And the world tells us today, though, don't get involved. But this inaction prevents them from being an effective intercessor. Sin kills Sin tears up relationships, dismantles marriages, stifles joy, and destroys peace. When Jesus saw sin, it broke his heart. He wept over entire cities as he saw them rejecting truth. Jesus never stood idle as those around him were being led astray by their sin. He always took an active role in turning them back to God. You know who a friend is? A friend is someone that gets in the way when you're on the way down. So this passage refers to the believer who has fallen into sin, one who is no longer living a life consistent with God's word. And many discussions have occurred over whether people can lose their salvation over sin, but interpreters agree that those who have fallen away from their faith are in serious trouble and need to repent. James urges believers to help those who have wandered away from their faith and help them return. By taking initiative, praying for these people, and acting in love, we can meet them right where they are and help them come back to God through forgiveness. So, Lorena, as we wrap up here, the book of James says, emphasize faith and action. Godly living is the evidence and result of faith. Believers must serve with compassion, speak lovingly and truthfully, live in obedience to God's command, and love one another. The church should be an example of heaven on earth, drawing people to Jesus through love for God and each other. If we honestly believe God's word, we will live it day by day. God's word does not merely give us something to read or think about, but something to live. Belief, faith, and trust must have hands and feet. And you're the ones with those hands and feet. So as we leave here today, may we be encouraged even though those first six verses didn't seem very encouraging. 
But may we be encouraged. May we seek opportunities to witness to those that are lost, to love one another at times when it's really hard to love each other. May we forgive each other when times when it's hard to forgive so that God might forgive us. There are so many out there that need to repent. There are so many out there that do not, need, do not know the Lord. And those of us who do know the Lord don't sit idly by and miss an opportunity. Don't do as I did early on as people encouraged me. You ever thought about being a pastor? And as a law enforcement officer and good at what I did, I would turn to him and say, hey, you ever think about minding your own business? <laughs> but I thank the Lord for those that encouraged me. For I got to know him deeper in a more intimate relationship. And I thank him each time I get to get up here. And I thank you for being patient and listening to his word. For it is not about me. It is all about him.